Our Father in heaven, Lord, we bow before you this morning and Father, or this evening, and we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Father, for uh, the rain that you blessed us with, and uh, now we have some clear skies, and Father, we just praise you for that. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to gather together tonight with your people, and we pray that you would just uh, bless our time as we uh, look into the scriptures, that your word would uh, minister to our hearts, and uh, may we be changed by it, may we glean things, Father, and grow. And uh, Lord, uh, most importantly, Father, that uh, we would glorify you in our lives uh, as we depart this place. Go with us now into the service, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, well, let's take our Bible tonight and make our way to the book of Job, Job chapter number one. Uh, we're going to be looking at Job this evening and uh, doing a little study of him and somewhat of an overview. I'm not going to take you through the whole book, uh, obviously, but uh, we can gather the gist of uh, Job and his experience and uh, what God teaches us through that. And uh, I've titled the message just very simply, The Patience of Job. The Patience of Job. And uh, I want to start by reading the first five verses, and then we'll come on down through the rest of the text. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter, and uh, we'll look at portions of chapter 2 as well. Uh, but let's look at this together tonight. I pray it be encouragement to us. The Bible says in verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, uh, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Just by way of introduction, we look at the life of Job, and we're all pretty familiar with, with how Job's story goes. Uh, we think about his life really, in a sense, looking like it's just turned upside down. Um, have you ever felt that way? Maybe something come into your life or something happened in your life where you just felt like, man, everything seems to be out of place. Uh, we probably all felt that way at certain points in our life. Sometimes we enter into seasons of life in which all that was normal around us is stripped away. Uh, we have times of unexpected events and uh, unexpected circumstances that uh, can change our lives both forever or maybe just for a short season, for a little while. And the truth is, is that life is full of uncertainty. That's just how life is. Uh, Job says it himself in chapter 14 of verse 1. He says, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Uh, we could probably identify with that to some degree, couldn't we? Uh, we've all experienced trouble in our life. And Job here, his experiences... He's living out that reality. What he says is uh, very true as he's living it out. And Job, is he's a man that's well known to many Christians, or he should be known to all Christians, but he's even known by some uh, in the world as having this regard of a man who had uh, been a man of suffering. Uh, we often think of people in the Bible, and uh, we identify them by how God used them or maybe something they experienced. Uh, most people would know the man, the name Noah, because we know of Noah as the one who built the ark. Uh, many would know of uh, Samson as the one who was very strong, Solomon, for his wisdom and 
Paul for his missionary journeys and efforts, but what is it that we know Job for? When we hear the name Job, what immediately comes to our mind? Well, what immediately comes to our mind is suffering, is affliction and trial. And so we, we know that uh, this is part of our life. Now, Job is not unique and by himself when it comes to suffering in this way because no one is exempt from suffering and hardship. It comes to all people. Suffering does not distinguish between the Christian and the non-Christian. Suffering does not stop short of certain classes of people, the rich or the poor, uh, those who are well off and those who aren't. Each of us can have our lives turned upside down in a moment. Uh, It takes just a second to have something drastic happen and our life has changed forever. And so Job's life and his suffering and what he goes through and how he responds and what we see at the end, all of it gives us a picture, an example of a man who is steadfast in suffering, but also how God is working behind the scenes in ways that we often don't realize and see. So I've got your notes for you here tonight, and I want to point out just a few things regarding Job. And uh, number one tonight, I want you to see the status of Job, and that's what we see in verse 1 through 5, and then we'll come on down to the rest of the account. But notice the status of Job. What do we learn about Job here? Well, one of the first things that sticks out to me about Job is that he's a man of faith. Uh, Job is a man of faith. He's a man who loves God. He's a man who's walking with God. He's a faithful man to God. And there's an idea that there's, uh, there's many who think that bad things only happen to bad people. Man, that is a misunderstanding, isn't it? They don't happen just to bad people in our eyes, but they happen on those who we would consider as good people. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus said this, God makes it the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So that right there kind of shows you that uh, it rains on the just and the unjust. But when we think about bad things happening to good or bad people, the truth is there are no good people, right? Uh, we're all sinful, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we have uh, all deserving of His wrath. Technically, there's no such thing as good people in the world. Uh, R.C. Sproul was once asked why bad things happen to good people, and his response was that only happened once, and he volunteered. And uh, I thought that was a good way of pointing that out about Adam. Uh, In a state of innocence, he volunteered for the bad to come upon him, the calamity. Uh, But from Adam to the rest of humanity, we've all sinned against our God. We're not good, as Romans 3.12 tells us. No one does good, not even one. God himself is good. And the fact that he is so gracious to sinful people should astound us. Uh, It should amaze us that he treats us in such a way with grace. But then we find there are times of suffering that come to people, whether we think they're good or not. In the case of Job, if we had to look at someone and say, oh, that... If we were to look at anyone and say, oh, that would be a good person or a person who is right with God, I guess you would say, we would look at Job and think that, wouldn't we? What does it tell us about Job? Look at verse 1. The Bible says Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. I mean, that's the description of a, of a man, how we ought to live, right? Uh, he was a man of God. He did what was right in God's sight, and he turned away from sin. The Bible says he's blameless. Not in the sense that he was sinless, because he was a sinner, just like all of us, but in the sense of having a godly integrity and a good reputation, he was a blameless man. Uh, And this is certainly how we ought to be as Christians. We ought to live in a blameless manner. We ought to live in a holy manner as we live out our Christian life. Uh, Philippians 2 and verse 15, Paul the Apostle wrote to that church and 
uh, tells them of his desire for them to be that way, that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So uh, Job, you look at him, he's somewhat of an example of that. Uh, He's a shining light. He's one that sticks out. He is one who is blameless in how he's living his life. But you'll notice through this passage that Job, he worshiped the Lord faithfully and was conscientious of the need for sin to be purged. Not just his own sin, but he's very aware for his family's sin. You look at verse number 5 and notice his actions. The Bible says, and it's referencing after his children had their feast and run their course, it says Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that the children have sinned, and cursed God in their heart, thus did Job continually. So Job has an understanding of the need for propitiation, for cleansing, for atonement, for uh, the sacrifice to be given on behalf of sin. So what you find with this is Job is interceding for his family, and he's consistently faithful in offering sacrifices for sin. And so he's a faithful man who obviously seeks, he loves God, he's walking with God, he's serving God. But not only was he a man of faith, he's also a man of family. We see that he's a family man. Look at what we find with him. The Bible tells us that there were born, in verse 2, born to him seven sons and three daughters. That's a good-sized family, isn't it? Uh, That's a good-sized family, seven sons and three daughters. That's ten children. Uh, That's somewhat of a rare thing in in our day. I know that uh, many families in time past, they would have ten children. Uh, I come from a family who's, who's had uh, at least eight children. My, my dad had uh, three brothers and, and uh, three sisters. And uh, on, my, on my mom's side, my grandmother, their, their family was a, ch- a family of ten. And uh, we know that children, uh, they're a blessing, blessing from God. And so God, uh, it's a blessing from him, as Psalm 127.3 tells us. But you can imagine, as you, as you think about Job and his family, how much Job loved his wife and loved his children. His love is evident in the fact that he's concerned with their spiritual condition. And I think that all of us ought to be concerned with the spiritual condition of our families. We ought to be conscientious of that, praying for them and doing what we can on behalf of them to uh, give them truth uh, that they may be right with God. So we consider our own families, how uh, blessed we are to have family. Our families are closest people to us in our lives. We live with them. We know them. and They know us. And Uh, there's no one closer to us in our life than our families. So Job was a family man. Not only that, notice with me, letter C, that he was a man of fortune. Notice how wealthy he is. He's a man of fortune. You look at verse 3. The Bible says that he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, Wealth, Job, I mean, Job's wealth, uh, Job's wealth was not in accordance to what our modern dollar would be or our retirement fund or whatever you would say is, is our wealth today. But in that day, your wealth was uh, shown by your livestock and your land and your servants. I mean, this, this shows us that Job is a very, very wealthy man, uh, much like others you'll find, like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and uh, how God had blessed them with that status. And with that, We read of Job that he's the greatest man of all the people of the East. He had that reputation. Now, there is nothing wrong with a Christian having wealth so long as the wealth doesn't have him. Uh, There's a difference in that. Some people think that it's 
meant that all Christians must live in poverty. That's just, that's not biblical at all. Um, I think whatever, however it is that God blesses us, if he blesses us with much or little, uh, we are to steward it according to his dictates in scripture. So Christians, they can have great wealth and yet be humble, faithful people of God. That's why Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what God blesses us with, he has blessed us in his providence, and we are called to steward it wisely and to be humble about it. So I think Job exemplifies that. He's a man who has great wealth. He's a man of faith. He's a man uh, of family. He, he, he seems to have this life that is all put together, everything that you could want, right? He's walking with God. He's got a great family. He's got all the wealth he needs. Would you ever look at a man like Job and expect his life just to be turned upside down? Well, many probably wouldn't think that could happen, but it did. And that brings us to really what the story is all about, and we're going to come through the rest of the chapter. Most of that introduction was just to give you a background, to look at who Job is. But notice with me, number two, I want you to see the suffering of Job. The suffering of Job, because that's really what Job shows us, is a man who is going through great suffering, great suffering, more, more suffering probably than any of us have ever experienced. Um, I look at Job, and we've all had certain measures of suffering here and there, but we look at Job, and I just, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. I wouldn't want to go through uh, what he's gone through. But yet, at the same time, we see the purpose and what God does through it, through the end. So notice with me about Job's suffering. We see that Job's affliction, it brought great pain to him. It brought great pain to him. You come down to verse 13 through 19 for a moment, and I'm, I'll come back to verse 6 through 12 in a minute. But I want you to see, firstly, his suffering and how his life seems to be just turned upside down. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone am escaped to tell you. So right there we have an attack on some of Job's wealth and what's going on. We come to verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He's lost some more wealth, lost some more things here, his sheep. While he was yet speaking, in verse 17, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Let's, let's pause there for a moment and just look at what's happening to Job, okay? In verse 14 through 17, Job loses his wealth. Loses his wealth. The Sabians come first. They kill his servants. They take his oxen and donkeys. Then in verse 16, the fire of God falls from heaven, kills Job's sheep and his servants. Verse 17, the Chaldeans came and stole Job's camels and killed his servants. I mean, how would you like to lose all your wealth? Well, we wouldn't prefer that, right? But wealth can be replaced. You can get more sheep. You can get more, uh, more stuff. You can, you can, you can uh, re- regain some wealth that maybe you lose. So what we find here is that wealth, we understand it's important to people, but it's not you know, the most important thing. Uh, most important thing is our life, right? So Job right here, if he's experiencing pain, it's monetary pain. All right? He's, it's monetary pain. But it just gets worse. 
it gets worse. There's a second way in which Job suffers. He suffers in his wealth, monetary. But then you come to verse 18 through 19, and Job loses something far more valuable than his wealth. He loses his family. Now look at verse 18 through 19 for a moment. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. There he loses his family, his precious children. Now, if there's one thing hardest to lose in life, I would imagine it be losing your own child. It's hard for me to fathom losing one of my children. But Job isn't losing one child or two children. He loses all ten of them. Imagine losing all of your children in one day on top of all of your wealth in one day. Now, here's what, something that always sticks out to me as I just think about Job and what he's experiencing here. Notice the, the compound succession of the news that comes to him. In verse 16 and 17 and 18, what do each of those verses begin with? While he was yet speaking. While he was yet speaking. While he was yet speaking. So, so Job gets news of one portion of his wealth gone and while that guy's still talking another guy comes and says another portion of his wealth is gone and so forth and then on coming down to his family that's gone so all of this news absolutely bombards Job in just a moment in the moment of probably just a less than a minute or so because it's all within the same sentence of someone speaking Bad news upon bad news upon bad news, all in a brief moment of time. Now, can you imagine getting news after news after news of something drastic that's happened? You know, usually somebody comes to you and you say, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first, right? And we usually have the choice. You know, what do you, what do you want to hear first? Well, this is bad news, bad news, and bad news, and bad news. There is no good news, Job. You're just going to take all of it. It's all bad news while he was yet speaking. But as if that wasn't bad enough, that's not the end of Job's suffering that he's about to experience. Now, we, we jump ahead for a moment to Job chapter number 2. Not long after Job lost his children and his wealth, he is very soon going to lose his health. Another aspect of suffering, terrible suffering. Now, let's see the backdrop for a moment. Job, Job 2 and verse 1 through 6 there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered, The Lord said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to, the, to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that the man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand to touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So through this, God gives Satan permission to afflict Job physically, physically, his health. And notice, notice verse 7 and verse 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. 
Now, some try to reason and understand what these sores might have been. The word used there for sores refers to an ulcer or an inflamed spot, something very painful. Uh, some translate that as boils, and it's the same Hebrew word that's used um, in Exodus when it's applied to the Egyptians during the plague. You remember the plague that included boils? Uh, the Bible tells us of that in Exodus 9, uh, verse 9 through 11. I think I have verse 11 there in your notes where we see the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and all the Egyptians. So this, this plague of boils that was given to the Egyptians, we see Job experiencing these same ulcers and sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Not just in one spot here or there, but covering his body. Now, can you imagine that kind of pain? Now, if we've ever experienced anything painful such as a health ailment, we know how detrimental that can be, right? That, that's one of the, the chief things that concerns us. If we've got uh, something going on in our body and it makes us nervous and it's disruptive to us and uh, it's uncomfortable. Now, compound this. Compound all that has happened to Job and just try to imagine how he feels right now. How would you feel in this circumstance? How would you feel if you lost all your wealth, you lost your family, and then you lost your health, all within the matter of just a couple days? Now, Job says in Job 9, verse 18, he kind of expresses how he's feeling. He says, he will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. In other words, he can't catch his breath. Have you ever been so overwhelmed in that fashion where you just felt like you couldn't breathe? You felt like you just couldn't handle what you were experiencing? I have. And it didn't take nearly as much affliction as what Job is experiencing here. Now, to add to Job's already painful experience, his wife is a grief to him. His wife's a grief to him. Now, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Then his wife said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, I can't imagine my spouse telling me that, right? If anything, I would imagine that my spouse, that Bethany, would try to encourage me in the Lord and say, trust the Lord, he's got a plan, there's a reason this is happening. But his wife, his wife is in Satan's corner. Because that's the whole mission of Satan here, right? To get Job to do one thing, curse God. And now his wife is saying the very thing that Satan wants him to do. But it gets worse for Job. Not, don't stop with his wife. We hear about Job's three friends, right? If you read through the book of Job, that's really the largest portion of the book is about the interaction between Job and his three friends. And they're interacting, and they go back and forth. But what do we find with his friends? They come to him only to enhance his grief, blaming him for all the things that are happening to him. That Job, this is somehow your fault. You've done something to provoke God. They try to give their advice and input while passing judgment on the whole situation from a human standpoint. Now, the words of Job's friends, they weren't helpful, they were hurtful. Job says to those friends later in Job 13, verse 4 through 5, As for you, you whitewashed with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Now, there is a lesson in that. We may want to comfort someone, but sometimes what we say may not be that too comforting. Sometimes it's best just to be quiet. Sometimes it's best just to be with someone and not even say anything, just to be with them. 
you know, when, when, when I lost my dad, uh, one of the greatest things that was comforting to me was just family coming and being there. There's no magic words to help to just fix the situation when you lose a loved one and, uh, or if you're going through any kind of trial. There's no words. Real. Sometimes there's words that can encourage, yes. I'm not saying it's never right to speak, but there's sometimes it's just the presence of uh, someone that loves you is a comfort, and that's what you need. So Job's friends, they do the opposite. They come in with their judgmental attitudes and really give Job, uh, really give Job a hard time. And so we can only imagine the physical, the mental, and the emotional pain Job is experiencing. And that brings us to ask the question, why? Isn't that the question when suffering comes? Why? When bad things happen, why? Why is this happening? Did Job, did Job do something to deserve this? Was this just some terrible accident or bad luck? how the world would like to see it, but we see the greater picture here. Notice with me letter B. We see not only that Job's affliction caused him great, great pain, but I want you to understand this is the, really the key to the whole thing. Job's affliction came under providence. It comes under providence, the providence of God. Now, when affliction comes to us, we do not get a behind-the-scenes look at how that came to be or why that came to be. You know, when you see a movie, sometimes it's cool to see the behind-the-scenes footage because then you can see how they got this shot or how they did this. Uh, one of the top movies right now is, is Top Gun. I've not got to see it, but it looks really good. And uh, they've got, they boast of their footage that they have, and even in the trailer, you can see how awesome the footage is of those uh, planes flying through the air. But you can see they, they shared some back uh, behind-the-scenes footage of how they did that. Well, they've got cameras in these cockpits, these new uh, high-tech cameras in the cockpits as they're flying these jets, and that's how they get the footage uh, in the jet as they're doing all these twisting and turning. So you get uh, a perspective there that uh, you can't get just from watching the movie. Now, think about with Job for a moment. God here gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the beginning of Job's affliction and the end of it. Now, come back for a moment. I skipped over this for, for a reason. Come back to verse 6 and 12, and we got of chapter 1. We got a glimpse of that in chapter 2 when I just showed you how Satan was requesting to hurt him physically. But you come back to chapter 1. Look at verse 6 through 12 for a moment. This is where it begins. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house, all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that is in your all that all he has is in your hand only against him do not stretch out your hand so satan went from the presence of the lord now notice in this text what we see here we see in verse 6 that the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord who are these sons of god well they're angelic beings um, they're not referring to sons of god as in the new testament believers born again believers but these are angels okay created by god 
We see reference to them later in the book that they were singing praises when God created in the very beginning. Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, that's, that's reference to the angels, all right, who were there at creation. But then these angelic beings come and be fear, appear before the Lord, but they're not alone in coming before the Lord. Who's with them? Satan. The Bible says as Satan came also among them. Now, Satan also is an angelic being, although he is a fallen angelic being. He is unholy. He is non-elect, unlike the rest of the angels who did not fall with him. So there was a portion of the angels that fell with Satan. All right? So he's evil. But notice that God starts up a conversation with Satan about what he's been up to. We already know what God knows he's what he God knows what he's been up to, but this is for dialogue purposes. In verse seven, Satan answers that he's been going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Well, we learned a couple of things there. What does Satan do? Well, he's walking about through this world, wreaking havoc through his evil ways. He's also not omnipresent. A lot of people think that the devil's everywhere and just all the all the time it's the devil that's tempting me. Chances are you may not have encountered Lucifer himself. By, but by all means, you may have encountered some of his fallen uh, minions, those that work with him. So he, he is a, is a, he's not omnipresent like God. He walks to and fro through the earth, and what's he do? He wreaks havoc with evil and seeks to oppose and oppress God's people. Now, Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And who is Satan's sights set on chiefly? God's people. He really doesn't have to do a whole lot for the lost people of the world, right? They're already bound in depravity, and they're easily influenced. What you find here is that he's the adversary. And that Hebrew word for Satan actually is, that's what it means. It means adversary. It's actually a title, not necessarily a name. It's a description of what he is. So he is the adversary. He is the one who opposes. The, he is the opponent of God and his people. So when we speak of Satan, we're speaking of the one with the title as adversary, the opponent to God and his people. And as the adversary to God and his people, Satan wishes to inflict as much opposition as possible to his people. But I want you to notice the next question that God brings. He asks for Satan, what you been up to? God already knows this. But notice what we find in verse 8. He asks the question, have you considered my servant Job? Now, when we look at Job's affliction, where did it come from? Well, you say, well, it came from Satan, right? Yeah, that's correct. But who recommended Job to Satan? God did. This wasn't Satan unilaterally saying, God, can I have Job? God recommended Job to Satan. The opposite. So, so it was, wasn't Satan who's asking for Job. It's God who has suggested Job to Satan. Would God allow Satan to test his people? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. Does God have a purpose in that? Yes, he does, as we'll see throughout the book. Does God, can God do this? Can he use evil for good? Absolutely he does. And this is something that many in our world need to understand. There are various ways in which God allows trials upon his people. It's not always directly from Satan, but sometimes he does allow evil sources to bring about affliction upon the people of God. Now, here a couple examples, I think. We think of Joseph. We're all familiar with Joseph, right? 
You remember Joseph's trial and how God used it for good? The Bible tells us in Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph is talking to his brothers after all that's gone on, how they had betrayed him, they had sold him into slavery, they wanted him dead, they hated him. All of that is evil. And here's what Joseph tells them after it's all said and done, how God has prospered him and brought him to a high position in Egypt. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. Now, if you look at Joseph and his trial, he suffered because of evil men, his brothers. Evil men. Selling him, hating him, turning him over to uh, the Egyptians. But that evil that he experiences, that suffering, that trial, at the same time, while it was them doing it, God is providentially using this for a greater purpose. And that purpose would ultimately bring about physical salvation for Egyptians from a famine and Joseph's own family who would come searching for food in Egypt. We think about Christ, our Lord. Did he suffer at the hands of evil? Absolutely he did. What did Peter say in Acts chapter 2? He's preaching to the Israelites and he says, you by wicked hands slew him, right? But in the same verse, he says, God foreordained this to happen. So you have providence alongside man's actions. And you see, the same thing is true about providence alongside the, the, the actions of the devil and, and Satan, how he works. Now, look at, look at Job, and you'll see the same thing that's, that's coming about. And, and just to note, the, the actions against Christ was for the greatest good of all, redemption through his blood, sacrifice, and resurrection. But look at Job, and what, what do you see happen here? If you come down to verse 12, God permits Satan to do what he wants to do with him, except for one thing. Don't stretch your hand against him. You can touch all that he has, but not him. Now, this brings an important note to us. Satan is always under the authority of God. He never can act outside of the authority of God. R.C. Sproul put it rightly when he said this, Satan can only do what the sovereign God allows him to do. He doesn't have power to overtake God in his will. He does what God allows. So everything is under God's sovereign authority. He is the ruler of his universe, and what comes to pass is what God allows. Lamentations 3 and verse 37. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord had commanded it? I mean, if that doesn't spell out sovereignty for you, I don't know what does. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? So what God allows is always under his authority, but is also always for a purpose. And often that purpose is not understood by us, nor is it meant to be understood by us. I think as we look at Job, there is some purposes that we can gain from Job's suffering. To what purpose would God allow Satan to afflict Job? Well, one, to silence Satan's false accusation against Job. What was Satan's accusation? If God takes away the hedge and blessing of Job, Job will do what? Curse God to your face. So essentially, here's what Satan's asserting. He's asserting that true believers are only faithful as long as they're prospering. Right? That's, that kind of goes, uh, goes against the grain of the modern-day gospel, prosperity gospel message movement, right? That people want their, their Christianity to be the means of which they prosper, prosper, prosper. But you take away their prosperity, and what happens to them? They fall by the wayside. Give a, give, give a, a, a counterfeit believer suffering, and you will soon see 
where their faith really lies. So one is to go against, to, to prove Satan wrong here. Another reason is to grow Job in his life of faith. And that's something we have to realize as Christians today. All Christians, all, all trials, understand, are meant for our spiritual growth. We don't go through trials just for the sake of going through painful things. They're always a purpose of growing through them. Someone rightly said, don't waste a good trial. We're to grow through it. So the Christian life is one of growth, and if trials are a means to that growth, then they are to be expected just as much as the rain falls from heaven to grow the earth. Stephen Lawson rightly said this, God uses our trials to make us, not break us. We mature more during the days of adversity than in the days of prosperity. There's a lot of truth to that. We grow far more under the weight of hardship than we do when it's all going easy and well. A smooth sea sea never made a skillful sailor, did it? So trials are to be expected by the Christian. And we see that through all through Scripture, even the New Testament. First, First Peter 4.12, what did Peter tell them? He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So, so bad happens in your life. Don't think that, oh, this is just some random, I can't believe this is happening. No, Peter says the Christians, don't be surprised by that, as if it's some strange thing that's happening to you. So growth in Job is one reason for this trial. And ultimately, number three, to glorify him in his providence over Job. That's one purpose we find here. What Job went through is an example to all of us reading this account thousands of years later. Job was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, book of the Bible ever written. He's one of those early, early men, probably in the days of Abraham, somewhere around that era of time. I don't know exactly, but in those early days after the flood, we see Job's life. And what it shows us, it shows us that trials are governed by God's providence And they are to the praise of God who is sovereign over all things in this world, including the details of our life. Now, Peter gives another exhortation to this truth. And I want you to read it with me in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 through 7 for a moment. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 through 7. If you look at 1 Peter 1 verse 6 and 7, and here's what he tells them. This is the beginning of his letter. And he says to them, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be, though though it is tested by fire, may be found to re, to to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I forgot to read verse six. Verse six says this: In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see, Peter understands that the working of trials in the life of a Christian is to cultivate his faith, and these trials ultimately bring glory and honor and praise to our God. So that's the ultimate purpose. Which brings me to number three. I want you to see this. We see the steadfastness of Job. All right, We've seen the suffering of Job. We've seen the status of Job. But I want you to see the steadfastness of him. Because what Job experiences and how he responds is, um, is truly an example to us. I want you to see firstly that he was committed to God through suffering. He was committed to God through suffering. When we see the affliction of Job, 
we can't help but think of how we might respond. Imagine experiencing this. How many people, if they went through that sort of thing, would immediately raise their fists up to heaven and curse God? They would blame him in some capacity. I've heard so many people tell me that. They've gone through this experience, and then they're just blaming God for it all, as if he can't be trusted. How would you respond to the loss of your family, health, and wealth in just a couple of days? When Job first got word of his wealth and family being taken from him, we see his response in Job 1 and verse 20 through verse 22. Notice what it says. After he gets all this news, while he was yet speaking, while he was yet speaking, while he was yet speaking, he's lost all his wealth and he's lost his children. In verse 20, the Bible says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That response right there fascinates me. Now, now Job, he shows his signs of grief. He tears his robe, and he shaves his head. Those are signs of, of grief, of mourning, of contrition. And we are allowed to show our grief and suffering. It's not wrong for you to cry. It's not wrong for you to mourn. It's not wrong for you to show your grief. It's sinful when we begin to, in pride, blame God for everything and refuse to trust him. But notice that that Job, what's his response? He fell on the ground and worshipped. What does it mean that he worshipped in this instance? The word for worship basically means to bow down to the ground, to prostrate oneself. But Job's not doing this with no meaning. He's not just randomly falling to the ground. He's doing this in reverence to the Lord because he's conversing with the Lord right here. He's speaking of the Lord right here. In verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. What's he saying there? Job recognizes that he has nothing in this world that is not given to him by God. And that's the reality. Everything that we have is given to us of God. Every gift, every blessing, every provision, the clothes on your back from the Lord, the food you ate today from the Lord, the air that you're breathing at this moment from the Lord, the family you have, the home you have, everything. There's not anything you could name in your life that just magically came from you. You say, well, I worked my job and I paid for it. How'd you get that job? Who gave you those hands to work, that mind to think, those legs to walk? You trace it back, everything comes from God. And Job recognizes that if God has given all these things, God also has the right to take them away because he's God. See, many people don't think that God has the right to take away that which he's given. Wrong. He does have the right to take away that which he's given because he's God and we're not. We're too too prone to think that we're the sovereigns over life, and we're not. He is. And we think about this question. Job recognizes that God is the one who's given and take away, and Job worships God in this instance. Does God deserve to be worshipped in such an instance? Yes, absolutely. Worship. What a response this is of Job. And as Job closes that, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, when Job's wife, you come on down, the, down to the next chapter, when Job's wife told him to curse God and die, how did Job respond to that? Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. 
The Bible says, He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He doesn't allow his wife to convince him to curse God and die. Job points out to her the foolishness of what she's saying and recognizes what Jesus would later teach, that it rains on the just and the unjust. So suffering, affliction, loss, and hardship all come to God's people just as they do the rest of the world. And Job here, doesn't matter how good of a man he was in, in, in the realm of testimony, as we would say, he was not exempt from suffering, and he recognized that. He knows that God brings good times and bad times. And in both times, good and bad, God is to be trusted no matter what. Job will later say in his debate with his friends, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. You see, Job knows that his friend's advice and accusations are false, and he will plead his cause no matter the cost. And if God even takes his life, guess what Job says? I still hope in him. I still trust in him. My trust is in him, even if he takes my life. He trusts the Lord despite what comes upon him. I love this quote by Thomas Watson. Listen to this. God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. Seem to run contrary to his promises. Many more scriptures could be given to show the display of faith and commitment of Job. His commitment to me, I think, is profound, and it's been recorded for us in both Testaments. You look at James chapter number 5 and verse 10 through 11 for a moment. James chapter 5 and verse 10 through 11, and notice what James says of Job to these Christians who were suffering. By, by the way, the majority of your New Testament, especially the letters, were written to suffering Christians. They weren't in times of prosperity. They were suffering persecution, fleeing for their life, worshiping in secret, many of them. And here's what they, they're, they're told by James. In James 5, verse 10 through 11, he says to them, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Right there, James references that what we have in the book of Job is an example of God's mercy and compassion and Job's steadfastness through his trial. Now, that word for steadfastness, it's also translated as patience in other texts, and it has the, the Greek definition of meaning this. It means the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. It refers to patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, perseverance. What a definition that is. The capacity to hold up and bear out in the face of difficulty, because that truly is where the testing comes. So this steadfastness, this patience, is to be the mark of the Christian in their suffering. And though Job wasn't perfect, don't mistake me, he wasn't a perfect man, all right? He is an example of perseverance. And as Christians suffer, we can find encouragement by looking to other Christians who have also suffered before us. But more importantly than that, Christians who are suffering, we're to look to Christ who has suffered worse than any of us is always on behalf of us. To the suffering Hebrews, the writer says in Hebrews 12:2 that they are to be looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
No suffering I could ever endure will ever compare to the suffering of Christ. And that's why Jesus is not just worth living for, he's worth dying for. He's worth suffering for. How do we respond to our suffering? This is really the call for us today. How do we respond to our suffering? Do you still trust God in your suffering? Notice with me, letter B, and lastly, that Job, not only did he, was he committed to God through his suffering, he receives clarity from God about his suffering. At the end of Job's suffering, what did God remind Job about? You come to the end of the book, you're going to see a conversation between Job and God. And they're conversing back and forth. And what does God remind Job of? He reminds Job how big he is and how small Job is. He asks him in Job 38, 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, where were you at? When I spoke everything into existence. You see, because the person and character of God are beyond the comprehension of man, so also are his purposes in our life. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55 tells us, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so that's the distance. So much higher are his ways than our ways. And so... This is why we must trust God, because He's above us, He's beyond us, and He's faithful to us. What is Job's response as he converses with God? Look at Job 40 for a moment. Job 40 in verse 4 through 5. I'm almost done, I promise. Job 40 in verse 4 through 5 for a moment. I'm just giving you some snapshots, but if you want to get the whole conversation, go read these last few chapters of Job. Look at verse 4 and 5, and here's what Job answers. Job answers and says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is, seeing, but Job is saying, I'm done talking. Who are we to question God? Who is man that he is to reply against God? He puts his hand on his mouth, and so often we need to do the same thing. Put our hands on our mouths and just let God be God and watch what he does in our life through our, through our suffering. We are no one to question God. Now, Job knows in the end that God's glorious, purpose, glorious purposes, they can't be altered. That what God ordains, he can't change it. He says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What God purposes, we can't undo. We can't change. So we have to trust him with it. We're not meant to understand all that God does, but we are to trust him in all that he does. We so often want to understand everything, don't we? That's our human nature. We want to understand how things work and why things happen. But when it comes to God and his purposes, we're not meant to understand everything. God took Job, took him through the trial of loss and affliction from a deep valley to a mountaintop of blessing at the, at the end of this account. You look at Job 42 for a moment. I want you to see the final, final verdict here. After he's gone through all this trial, look at how the Lord blesses him. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. I don't know if I'm saying that right, so bear with me. 
And in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. You know, often in the midst of our suffering, we feel like our life is over, right? I'm not going to get any better. I'm near my end. Job, in the midst of his suffering, he has no clue that he's got 140 more years to live and that God's going to bless him with double compared to what he had at the beginning. I had to go back and look at it. He had 7,000 in the beginning. He's got 14,000 now, sheep. God doubled his livestock, doubled it all, and he gave him the exact amount of kids he lost. New kids. This shows us that the end God has in mind is far greater than the beginning, and that's true for all of the Christian life, even our salvation. You understand that what we have in Christ is far greater than what we lost in Adam. And the same is true in other things, that God is working all things for his people to good, right? All things are working for good to them who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And we know that applies directly to the Christian. It involves sanctification, but it also involves just God's providential workings. But here's what I want you to think of and consider. Job, in the midst of this trial, he never cursed God. Had times when he wished he hadn't been born, but he never cursed God. Did Job know all that was going on in the midst of his suffering? Did Job know about the conversation between God and Satan? He has no clue. Understand, we have the big picture. Job didn't have the big picture. Job is in the moment, living the day-to-day suffering of what he's experiencing. And here's the reality is that we're just as Job. We don't know the big picture. We don't know the big picture. And that's why we as Christians, we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. We're called to trust God in his word, no matter what that entails. So Job, we look at him, was his life turned upside down? Well, to him and us, we would say, yeah, it probably was. Was Job's life ever upside down in God's eyes? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So we're going to go through times of suffering that seems like our life is upside down. But we need to remember the suffering of Job, but also the patience of Job. Because God was sovereign over it all, and he had a glorious purpose, a glorious purpose in what he did through it. So I pray that would give us some insight as as Christians today, because we too will go through suffering. It's part of the Christian life. You're not going to live the Christian life and not have times of suffering. It's part of it guaranteed and so we have great example in Job